Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. That's the text in front of us this morning. The title of the message is According to Plan. According to Plan. Friends, I want to remind you that there was no accident or chance in any part uh, of the Lord's ministry, uh, specifically as his ministry winds to a close. We see the close of Jesus' earthly ministry. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing, nothing is happening by accident. The steps that Jesus walked from Gethsemane to Calvary were marked out hundreds of years before Jesus ever took on human flesh. I think about passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, passages that were fulfilled literally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The wrath of his enemies, rejection by his own people, being treated as a malefactor, being condemned by the wicked, all had been foreknown and foretold before the foundation of the world. Everything that's happening is happening according to plan. Everything that took place served to work out God's great design providence and atonement for our sin. Even the armed men who Judas brought to seize Jesus were merely instruments in carrying out God's redemptive purposes to their fulfillment. Everything, like clockwork, is clipping along according to plan. Friends, we can... Rest our souls on the truth that every moment that clips by in this Genesis 3 fallen world is ordered by and overruled by the almighty wisdom of a sovereign God. The course of this world may often be contrary to our wishes. Even the state of the church at times may be unlike what we desire. The wickedness of worldly men and the inconsistency of believers may affect our own souls, but there is at hand, above us, moving the vast machine of the universe, a sovereign God that is making all things work together for his glory. The scriptures are continually being fulfilled. Not one jot in them is ever going to fail. Everything will be accomplished. The kings of the earth may take counsel together. The rulers of the nations may set themselves against Christ, but the resurrection morning will stand to prove that even in the darkest hour, all things were being done according to the will of God. Be a good place to insert an amen. With that being said, let's turn our attention to our text this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52, and these are the words that he pens. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him under guard. And when he came, he went up with him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, but you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him, 
with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. What I want you to see this morning as we venture through the text, what I want you to leave with this morning is a very clear understanding that everything that's taking place in the final hours of Jesus' life, everything that has taken place since the foundation of the world, I would submit to you, is taking place according to God's divine, foreordained, sovereign plan. Everything is taking place. Everything is happening according to plan. All that is happening is fulfilling God's sovereign prerogative and plan. Number one, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so. You'll listen better if you do is this. God's plan is fulfilled through corrupt authorities. God's divine sovereign plan is fulfilled through corrupt authorities. Look back at your Bible there for a moment. Verse 43 The opening of our text this morning, and immediately, which that's one of Mark's favorite words, by the way. Remember way back when we started our study in Mark's gospel, we see that Mark begins using this word immediately. It's one of his favorite words. Mark is showing us things in fast action. Mark is reporting the events of Jesus' life and ministry, death, crucifixion, and resurrection in very fast sequence. And so we see it again, and immediately... While he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came. Jesus reminds us that he was one of the twelve. And with Judas, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, let's put the timeline together here. It is now likely sometime after midnight, but yet hours before dawn on Friday morning. Jesus is just hours away at this moment from his crucifixion. Jesus will be tried, sentenced, and crucified all in a matter of moments. This has been an incredibly busy day for Jesus. Every day for Jesus was a busy day, but this day was an incredibly busy day for Jesus and his disciples. Again, let's quickly rewind. Earlier that day, So everything that took place before 6 p.m. would have been Thursday, right? Because by the Jewish reckoning of time, 6 o'clock or 6.30 in the evening constitutes the following day. And so sometime in the afternoon, Thursday before 6.30, Jesus sent Peter and John from Bethany. That's where Jesus and his disciples were staying there. He sent Peter and John into Jerusalem with a very specific instruction to go and prepare for the Passover celebration. And so Peter and John go into Jerusalem, they secure the location, they take care of acquiring the sacrifice that is necessary, and they make all the preparations for the meal. And then sometime after dark, sometime after 6 p.m., so it would have been Friday now, that evening, Jesus and the ten joined Peter and John in Jerusalem for the celebration. And it was during that Passover meal that evening where Jesus made the bombshell announcement that one of the twelve would betray him. And Jesus said this back in Mark chapter 14, earlier in verse 18. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And so the disciples understandably 
became very sorrowful. And they began to say to one another and to him, is it I? Am I the one? Am I the defector? Am I the one that's wearing the jersey but not playing for the team? Am I the one that will betray you? Jesus says to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. We know from John's gospel that that individual was Judas. Judas was the one whom dipped, uh, who Jesus dipped the morsel of bread in the dish and then gave it to him. And John's gospel tells us that as soon as Judas received the morsel from Jesus, then he, Judas, went out. He immediately left the company of the disciples. We don't know the exact sequence of events, but it seems that following Judas' departure from the upper room, Jesus and the other 11 remained there in the upper room. Judas slips out to be by himself, and after Judas departs from the upper room, he likely went to the chief priest to inform them that he was now ready to hand Jesus over to them. Remember right after Mary anointed Jesus at Bethany? So this is just a couple, three weeks ago in our study. Right after Mary anointed Jesus at Bethany, Judas went to the chief priest and he asked this question. He said, what will you give me if I deliver this man over to you? We noted a couple of weeks ago when we studied that, that Judas didn't even have a price in mind. Or at least if he did, he did not ask for a specific price. He simply said, what will you give me? What will you give me if I turn him over to you? Matthew tells us that they paid him 30 pieces of silver, which was a few months' wage, and ironically, according to Exodus chapter 21, the price of a slave. Matthew goes on to tell us from that moment, Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. So Judas has been looking for the opportune time now. He's been looking for the opportunity with which he can turn Jesus into the chief priest. He's got money in hand. Now he's just looking for the opportunity. Having gone to the chief priest to alert them that Jesus was in the vicinity, to alert them to Jesus' whereabouts, a small army of officials has now gathered. That's the crowd spoken of in verse 43. Notice also the arresting authorities. Look at your Bible there. There came with them the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is the exact same contingency that Jesus said back in Mark chapter 8 would crucify him and kill him. Jesus has already said this. Everything that's happening is happening according to God's divine, sovereign prerogative and plan. Jesus said back in Mark 8.31, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and killed, but he will rise three days later. Everything is just ticking along right according to plan. Accompanying the Jewish religious leaders was a crowd with swords and clubs. The word crowd there, it's the Greek word aklos. Aklos. It's probably actually better understood as an army. Better understood as an army. This was probably a group of temple police who worked under the high priest, whose job it was to maintain order in the temple area. You can imagine as all the Passover pilgrims were were flooding into Jerusalem that it required a little people management, more so than normal even. And so here you have some of the temple police 
John tells us that the arresting force included a band of soldiers, suggesting that Pilate cooperated in the arrest. And so what you see here is you see Jews and Gentiles, though they hated each other, Jews and Gentiles, at least for this evening, for the purpose of apprehending Jesus, are operating in harmony. They didn't agree about much, but this evening they agree, they agree that Jesus must be extinguished. And so Judas likely led the arresting army to the upper room first. Remember, that's where Judas knew that Jesus and the disciples were. And so he likely slipped out of the room, leaving Jesus and the eleven there, when an alert of the chief priest who gathered the temple guard and this band of soldiers, Roman soldiers, and they probably come back to the upper room first. But when they find out that that room had been vacated, Judas probably thought of the next best place they might find Jesus. John, in his gospel, in John chapter 18, tells us that the Garden of Gethsemane was a frequent meeting place for Jesus and his disciples, and so Judas would have known well that Jesus likely would have been there. And so Judas and the authorities crossed the Kidron Valley, just like Jesus and the disciples had uh, moments before, under the flickering light of lanterns, where they find the one they're looking for. Friends, God's plan is fulfilled even through corrupt authorities. Everything is moving along according to God's sovereign plan. Number two, write this down. God's plan is fulfilled through a disloyal kiss. God's plan is fulfilled through a disloyal kiss. Look back at your Bible there, verses 44 through 46. Now the betrayer had given them That's the chief priest, the scribes, the elders. That's the temple police. That's the Roman guard. Had given them a sign saying, The one I kiss, he is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Everything's under control in the garden. Everything's happening according to plan. Matter of fact, Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Holy Spirit beforehand, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. You see, scripture is just being fulfilled. Scripture speaks of Judas, who would be a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And that's exactly what we see taking place in our text. Though everything about Judas's betrayal of Jesus was devious, the plan he made with the authorities as to how he would point Jesus out to them in the dimly lit garden was wicked beyond comprehension. Judas would kiss Jesus in order to identify the one they were to arrest. It's interesting to note here that the common word for kiss, which is phileo, you would probably be familiar with that word as one of the words for love, right? Phileo. Well, it's oftentimes translated to kiss as well. That's the, the common Greek word for kiss, phileo. It's actually used in verse 44. The one I kiss is the man. That's phileo, right? But the kiss that Judas gives Jesus is anything but common. 
Because the word that is translated kiss in verse 45 is the word katapheleo. It's a little prefix added to the word phileo there. And that means to kiss earnestly or to kiss affectionately. The prefix kata intensifies the basic verb. In other words, this was not a playground peck uh, taking place here in the garden. Judas's kiss probably on the hand of, Judah, uh, of Jesus, because that would have been the, the customary way that a student would address a rabbi or a pupil would greet a rabbi, was passionate and prolonged. You might be interested to know that this is where we get our saying, the kiss of death. The kiss of death. What really stands out in the middle of Judas's betrayal is that Judas used such an intimate expression of love and respect to betray Jesus. I mean, Judas could have come up with anything under the sun as a sign, alerting the authorities to the one they should seize. But Judas chose the sign of a kiss. The intimate expression of love and respect Judas used to betray Jesus. Judas's actions were hypocritical, hypocritical in the extreme because his actions said one thing while his heart said another. Judas's actions said, I respect and honor you, while at the same time his heart said, I hate you and I love 30 pieces of silver more than you. This is the height of hypocrisy. Judas' actions illustrate the words of Proverbs 27, verse 6. Wounds of a friend can be trusted, but the enemy multiple kisses. But the enemy multiple kisses. Judas' kiss of betrayal demonstrates just how low the human heart can descend. I mean, like a funnel. How low can you go? We see how low the human heart can descend right here in Mark chapter 14. Notice that Judas called Jesus rabbi and not Lord because Jesus was never Lord to Judas. When Jesus was betrayed by a kiss, Jesus could identify with the troubles of David who wrote in Psalm 55 these words. David wrote, for it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house and we walked in the throng of God's people. I mean, David was saying, if, if it was an enemy, I could deal with that. But I was betrayed by a friend. I was betrayed by someone who was supposed to be close to me. I was thinking in my study this week about how Jesus could have absolutely obliterated Judas and the arresting army. But he didn't. With one word, Jesus could have assembled a legion of angels and absolutely atomized his enemies on the spot, but he didn't. 
Instead, Jesus looks into the eyes of Judas, illuminated by the dark, flickering torches, and calls him friend. Mark doesn't pick up on that. The other gospel writers do. Jesus looks into Judas's eyes, the one who has come to betray him, and calls him friend. Friend. Matthew records it. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. This is the fruit of a lifelong abiding in God's will. Jesus had just gotten up from deep and intimate, prolonged prayer with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had been abiding with his father from the time of his incarnation back before the foundation of the world and into eternity past. And this abiding in the will of his father allowed Jesus in his humanity to look into the eyes of his betrayer and to call him friend. Friend. I mean, betrayal is never easy. Especially, especially when it comes from a suspected friend. The text doesn't tell us, but you can rest assured that Jesus responded to Judas just like he responded to the rich young ruler. He looked at him and loved him. Remember that? How did Jesus respond to the rich young ruler who refused to repent and went away sad because he had great wealth? Jesus looked at him and loved him. And friends, I would submit to you that in Jesus' look to Judas, in Jesus' response, friend, Jesus loved him. He loved him. Jesus didn't just tell us to love our enemies and to pray for those who hate us and to pray for those who persecute us. Jesus himself modeled that teaching given to us in the Sermon on the Mount. He lived it out. I mean, have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been stabbed in the back? Before I say anything else, let me just say that that is not the point of the text. The text isn't just how can you relate with Jesus in this moment. But I think we would be remiss if we didn't bring that application to bear. What about you? Have you ever felt the sting of betrayal? And let me ask you this question. More importantly... How did you respond? How did you respond to the treachery of betrayal? Did you respond vindictively? Did you feel like you had the right and the privilege and the authority to be hostile? Jesus never gave us that option in the Bible. Not once did he. If we abide in Christ and his love abides in us, Not only can we keep from treating our enemies with contempt, but we can actually love them and seek their good. Does that speak about the way that we deal with others who betray us? Does that characterize us well? That we not only keep from treating our enemies with contempt, that we not only keep from treating those who who stab us in the back, and are treasonous with us with contempt, but we love them and we actually seek their good. 
maybe something for you to pray about this week. While Mark doesn't include all the details, I'm fascinated by John's account of Jesus' arrest here. I, uh, if, if you don't own a copy of a, a good, a solid biblical harmony of the Gospels, I would encourage you to get one. And uh, this is a resource that takes the, the four Gospels and, and layers them together so you can, can see uh, what's taking place. And so as I was studying this week, I was uh, leaning heavily on John's Gospel here. John writes with much more detail. Again, Mark is interested in giving us the brass tacks. Here's what happened, and we're moving along. But John expounds upon the betrayal of Jesus. John tells us that after Judas's kiss of betrayal, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Jesus is now speaking to the, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the temple police and the Roman guards. Jesus is speaking to them and he says, who do you seek? Who are you looking for? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said this to them, they drew back and all fell to the ground. Commentators have numerous thoughts as to why the arresting army, why the crowd in front of Jesus uh, here fell to the ground. Uh, There's all kinds of interesting thoughts there. But I'm most interested in the way Jesus replied. I'm most interested in what Jesus said. When the arresting army indicated they were seeking Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus responded, Ego a me. Literally translated, I am. Who are you seeking? We're seeking Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds familiar. It sounds a whole lot like Exodus 3.14 when Moses asked God who he was to say sent him when the people of Israel asked him. And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. And so you ask yourself, well, what's the message here? What am I supposed to glean from this? Well, I believe the message is that Jesus is sovereign even in submitting to his arrest. I mean, the one who is I am is giving himself over. He's not being taken by force. He's not being backed into a corner. Jesus is giving himself over. No one takes my life from me. I give it on my own accord, Jesus said. Jesus is in complete control even of his arrest. As soon as Judas kissed Jesus, the arresting authorities, look at your Bible there, it says, laid hands on him and seized him. They laid hands on him and they seized him. The word laid there, it's epibalo. It means to to cast or to throw upon. It means to, to take with violence. While Jesus offered no resistance to his authorities, Those authorities forcefully seized him. And this is when things get very interesting in the text. This is when things get very interesting. But what I want you to see here is that God's plan is fulfilled even through a disloyal kiss. Number three, write this down. God's plan is fulfilled through fleeing disciples. 
God's plan is fulfilled through fleeing disciples. Look at verse 47, as well as verses 51 through 52. Verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And they all left him and fled. And then look at verses 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Mark recorded a single-handed attempt by an armed man uh, who he leaves unnamed here. But we know that the individual with the sword here is Peter. We know that from John's gospel. Again, John 18. We know that this man is Peter, the one who takes up arms, the one who reaches for his dagger is Peter. And Peter took that dagger, he drew back, and he struck Malchus, the servant of the high priest of Caiaphas. I mean, Peter, 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 bro. Uh, Listen, if you're going to lop somebody's ear off, don't lop off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Come on, bro. Peter was doing exactly what he thought that Jesus had asked he and James and John to do, which was to watch or to look out for Jesus while he prayed in the garden. But what Peter didn't understand is that that guarding of Jesus was no longer needed. Peter, James, and John were to watch, were to stand guard for Jesus as he prayed earnestly in the shadow of of the garden. But Jesus is now standing before his enemies face to face and toe to toe. And that guarding is no longer needed. It was the prayer that took place in that shadowy garden that allowed Jesus in his humanity to stand before his captors and to willingly give himself over. He didn't need to be guarded anymore. Jesus was now ready to be taken Both Matthew 26 and John 18 tell us that Jesus instructed Peter to put his sword away. And uh, I would submit that that was wise counsel. There would have likely been four crosses on Calvary's hill had Peter not put his sword away. Probably would have cost his life. Peter's defense of Jesus was a uh, a wrong action in a wrong place. What does Jesus teach us here from this? From this whole instance? I think first... Uh, Jesus teaches us that vengeance belongs to God, right? I have said that before. I'll say it again. Uh, Vengeance is God's parking space. Do not park there. Don't park there. It's reserved for God and God alone. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 12, right? Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is good and honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Hey, just... Put that in your hat for this week. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. How you doing there? How you doing there with your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your co-workers, and your acquaintances? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Paul goes on and he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, friends, revenge sells books and movies, but it is the antithesis 
of the way that God's man and God's woman are supposed to act. I think Jesus is teaching us here that vengeance belongs to God. Secondly, Jesus teaches us that Christianity is not advanced based on the power of the sword. Biblical Christianity uses an infinitely greater power. It's the power of the gospel message. Romans 1.16, right? It's the power of the gospel that takes root in the heart of a man or a woman. One commentator that I was reading this week brought some interesting um, thoughts from the text here. He asks this question. I thought it was helpful. He said, have you chopped off any ears lately? Is there blood on the ground due to a blow that you have self-righteously inflicted upon another? If so, then submit yourself to Christ and do what he tells you to do. Luke records that Jesus told Peter, no more of this. No more of this. Stop it. Stop it. If there's blood on the ground because of some self-righteous wound you have afflicted upon another, stop. No more of this. No more of this. Put your sword away. Only Luke, the physician, notes that Jesus healed the severed ear. Jesus can heal any injury that your sin has inflicted upon another as well. If you repent and humble yourself. When Jesus' response made it clear that he would not resist arrest, his disciples' confidence in him as Messiah began to come crumbling down. Mark tells us that everyone deserted him and fled. No one remained with Jesus to share in his suffering, not even Peter. Not even Peter. Remember, it was Peter, Peter just, just verses ago that said, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll give my life for you. I will go to the grave right alongside you. Where's Peter in this moment? Even he fled. Look at verses 51 and 52. Church tradition tells us that the man spoken of in verse 51 and 52 are actually Mark himself. Mark doesn't name himself in these verses. And this is not a hill that I'm willing to die on. Uh, But church history uh, notes that the one spoken about that comes in linen and then runs away exposed is actually Mark himself. This is certainly a reasonable possibility. I mentioned a couple parallels to the first garden last week, and yet we see another parallel to the first garden here in our text. As it was in the Garden of Eden, our nakedness is, is exposed, and we desert the God who loves us and who has graciously and abundantly pursued us with his love and kindness and good gifts. Such a clear picture, harking back to the first gospel again. Our, we sinned. And all of a sudden, we became naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews chapter 4. Now, here's another hill that I'm not willing to die on. But it's possible that Mark intends an allusion uh, to Amos chapter 2 here in verses 51 and 52. It's possible that Mark intends an allusion to Amos chapter 2. Amos chapter 2 describes a time of crisis when even the bravest or even the mightiest will run away naked. 
The point of the illusion could certainly be to show that the, the action of Jesus' followers was all foreseen. I mean, Jesus has already told us just back in, uh, in verse 27, Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Uh, Mark harked back to Zechariah chapter 13. That tells us when the sheep is, or sorry, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. We see that right here in our text. When the shepherd is struck, the the sheep will will scatter. In Mark chapter 15, verse 46, we'll be there shortly. Jesus, Jesus' naked body, remember his clothes were taken from him by the soldiers in chapter 15, verse 24. Jesus' naked body is clothed before burial in a linen cloth. It's the exact same word used here to describe the young man's garment in verses 51 and 52. And so here's the the hill that I'm not willing to die on, but I think there could be an interesting illusion here. It's possible that the young man in this scene unknowingly anticipates the burial of Jesus. Just like Mary unknowingly anointed Jesus for his burial, it's possible here that this young man unknowingly anticipates the burial of Jesus. And the young man runs away, leaving his linen cloth, while Jesus is crucified and buried in another such cloth, perhaps a dramatic portrayal of the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death. Not willing to die on that hill, but I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. Number four, write this down. God's plan is fulfilled through a faithful Savior. God's plan is fulfilled through a faithful Savior. Look at verses 48 and 49. And Jesus said to them, speaking to the mob, the crowd in front of you, Have you come out against me like a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and yet you did not seize me then. We see God's plan fulfilled through a faithful Savior. Jesus offered no resistance. He did not protest his arrest. But he did ask a question. He said, I, I've been with you. You know exactly who I am. You've seen me. You've watched me. You've heard me. You know exactly who I am. Day after day, I was with you, and you could have arrested me. So why do you come after me under the, the, the veil of night and treat me like a robber? Jesus wasn't a revolutionary who acted uh, in stealth. He was a recognized religious teacher, though they hated what they recognized about his teaching. He was a recognized religious teacher. There was no need for all this drama. Again, openly, day after day, he was with them in the temple. They're arresting him like a criminal at night in a secluded place. It really served to show their cowardice. But this all happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Again, and you ask, what scriptures? What scriptures literally fulfilled here? Well, let me, just, let me just point you to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Fulfilled. Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Check. Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. Check. And many, many more. 
was thinking about those who attack Christianity. What is our hope for those who attack Christianity? Well, our hope for those who attack the cause of Christ and the captain of our salvation himself is that God would save them. That God would reach into their stony hearts and remove that heart and give them a a heart of flesh and put his spirit in them and move them to walk in his ways. That God would save them. Friends, who are you praying for? Who, Who is on your radar? Who's on your spiritual radar? That blip that keeps coming up and you're reminded, ah, I need to pray for that person. God, would you save them? God, would you arrest their hearts? You see, the mob in front of Jesus thought they were arresting him. They were the ones, oddly enough, ironically, who were being arrested because everything is happening according to God's sovereign, divine, foreordained plan. Friends, let me encourage you to pray for those who would attack Christianity. God is able to change the hardest hearts by the power of the gospel. We must plant and we must water, but we must also pray. Are you planting, are you watering, and are you praying? Every single one of us, to some degree, ought to be about that business. It's going to look different in each of our lives, and that's okay. But every single one of us ought to be watering, planting, and praying. How are you doing there? Lastly, number five, God's plan is fulfilled through the infallible scriptures. God's plan is fulfilled through the infallible, or fulfilled, rather, through the infallible scriptures. Verse 49 there, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. The angry mob, Judas's betrayal, Jesus' arrest, the disciples fleeing, these are again all fulfillments of Scripture. Nothing that is happening here in the garden or anything else for that matter is happening by chance. The sovereign God of the universe is directing history according to his own purposes and his own plan. Every single one of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the suffering servant were being fulfilled in detail, no mystery or surprises exactly what God had predetermined would happen and all a part of his glorious redemptive plan. Friends, this gives us great hope regarding the yet unfolded, the yet unfulfilled prophecies of the future return of Christ and his glorious kingdom. If God has fulfilled every single Old Testament prophecy in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you have every hope that God will fulfill those that are remaining to be fulfilled concerning the coming and the glorious kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. What hope we have. What hope we have. Are you ready for Christ's return? I hope you are. I hope that you are ready for him to appear in the clouds and to see him face to face. But friends, you need to know that there's a judgment day coming when the captain of our salvation will judge the world according to righteousness. Peter preached this. He, God, commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day upon which he will judge the world in righteousness and by a man, speaking about Jesus, whom he has appointed. Friends, let me encourage you, don't be a John chapter 5, verse 39 person. Like, write that down in the margin of your notes. Don't be a John 5, 39 man or woman or boy or girl. Don't be that person who searches the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and forget or miss or overlook the fact that those scriptures point to Jesus and they're all fulfilled in him. 
Put your hope in him. Turn from your sin. Flee the wrath that is to come. Be hidden in Jesus, the second and the greater Adam, not in the trespasses and the sin and the condemnation of the first Adam. Let me close this morning with the words to a beautiful hymn uh, that was written by uh, Mr. Townsend and Keith Getty. If you're, if you're not familiar with the Gettys, I uh, would encourage you to look them up. The title of this hymn uh, that they wrote is the Gethsemane Hymn. Just, just listen to these words here. Give me your attention uh, for just a moment. They write this, To see the King of Heaven fall, in anguish to his knees, the light and hope of all the world, now overwhelmed with grief. What nameless horrors must he see to cry out in the garden, O oh, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, but yours. To know each friend will fall away, and heaven's voice be still, for hell to have its vengeful day upon Golgotha's hill. No words describe the Savior's plight, to be by God forsaken, till wrath and love are satisfied, and every sin is paid. What took him to this wretched place? What kept him on this road? His love for Adam's cursed race, for every broken soul. No sin, so, so, or no sin, too slight to overlook, no crime too great to carry. And mingled in his poisoned cup, yet he drank it all. Our Savior drank it all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, what glorious hope we have. Lord, we know that everything that has happened, everything that is happening, is happening according to your sovereign prerogative and plan. Uh, Lord, that you are fulfilling in the moments of history and in the moments of each day, you are fulfilling your redemptive plan and purposes, and we thank you for that. Lord, we await the day when, when your plan and your purposes cause the heavens to split open and the Lord Jesus Christ to descend in power and in glory and to take the church, the redeemed of God, to be with him for days without end. God, I pray if there's a person here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ by faith and repentance, that you would arrest their hearts. God, that you would cause them to come to a place of humility and contrition of spirit, that they would repent and believe and be saved, sealed with the blood of Christ, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing the inheritance which is to come. Father, help us to anticipate the return of Christ. We see all of these Old Testament prophecies fulfilled, and we know that every prophecy that you have uh, spoken in your word will come to its intended conclusion and fulfillment, all in the person and work of the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. To him we give all honor, glory, and praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.